I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome back, folks. Thanks for joining us tonight. I've got a pretty special episode of the BYB podcast for you tonight. Uh, I've got a very good guest. Um, With us tonight is John Pessa. John is the one of the founding editors of ESPN the magazine. Um, he's a longtime newspaper man, and he's also the author of several great books, um, including a couple of recent ones on the general topic of baseball. Um, some of you might be familiar with the book The Game, um, Inside the Secret World of Major League Baseball's Power Brokers. Um, I've mentioned that, that book quite a bit in the comments um, and in various discussions on the site. Um, it's basically a, a history of the, the labor strife between players league and owners, basically from the beginning of free agency, but particularly um, throughout Bud Selig's tenure as commissioner. And with that book, John provides a a ton of research, um, a ton of sourcing um, quotes, um, very, very readable book for something that could be kind of a dry history. Um, I think most of you would really enjoy it, um, especially in the the current situation we're in, um, coming out of the labor negotiation that basically went nowhere and led us right back to uh, the March 22nd, you know, prorated salary agreement that the uh, the players and Major League Baseball um, apparently have somewhat agreed to now. Um, so um, we're going to talk about that topic in particular because John has a lot of insight, um, has done tons of interviews, talked to all the major players um, in depth, and that book kind of really, really gives you an, an inside, you know, an inside look at what goes on behind the game, particularly. For a lot of you, um, the interest will be in the strike years in the in the early mid '90s, um, and basically how you know how the players' union and owners have negotiated over the past you know 30 or 40 years, leading right up to today. So he's got a lot of insight into that topic. So we'll talk to him about that. Um, his new book, though, that which just came out um, back in April, is Yogi: A Life Behind the Mask, which is a comprehensive and quite awesome biography of the famed Yankees catcher Yogi Berra and manager. We're going to talk a little bit about that at the end as well. Um, that that book is getting rave reviews as well. Um, the game was also extremely highly acclaimed. Um, we'd recommend both of them, and we're very thankful to have John on with us. Um, this conversation was recorded on Wednesday night, June 24th, and away we go. Baseball obviously has, has announced that, you know, I, I don't know if I'd call it an agreement, but we, uh, we seem to at least have some kind of a plan forward. Um, did that news you know, excite you? Um, you know, I, it's, it's kind of hard to know exactly what to expect, even, um, even with, you know, some kind of a tentative schedule, but how are you, how are you feeling based on that announcement? Well, as a baseball fan, I'm excited that there will be baseball that I can watch. I mean, right now I live in, in New York where we've been at the epicenter since the beginning of this and um, every day seems to be Groundhog Day. Um, we barely go out. I've been to the store a handful of times. So, uh, I've been listening to baseball, um, since I was four years old <laughs> and it's always been on in my house. Um, whether on the radio, on the television, whether I'm watching or not, it's the background music of, of, of the spring and the summer. And this, this is such a disruption in the normal rhythm of my life. So, um, I don't care if it's not 162 game season. I mean, a lot of people 
have complained to me, oh, this isn't going to be a real... Of course it's not going to be a real season. This hasn't been a real year so far. <laughs> period. Yeah. anything. Yeah. So it's just like, you know, if I get to see Garrett Cole pitch for the Yankees, you know, um, and, and if Aaron Judge's rib, broken rib is finally uh, healed, um, then this will be, you know, I'll be happy. And uh, so from that aspect, I'm really looking forward to, to baseball. I, I don't know whether we're going to see this in, in its completion. And I was stunned today, literally stunned, to read the owners of the Texas Rangers and the um, Houston Astros talk about um, filling their stadium to 50% capacity. Yeah. On, on a day when the, uh, the United States had its highest total ever of, of virus cases. Yep. And on a day when Texas had its second straight day of 5,000 plus uh, cases, the, the, the highest ever. So whether, whether there's going to be a, a, whether this lasts, whether they even make it through spring training, um, I, I don't know, but I certainly hope so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think all of us could could really desperately, um, even even as a Tigers fan, uh, I, I would love to see some baseball. <laughs> um, did, did I mean? Did you get a chance to pay much attention to some of the you know the negotiating in public that went on? Um, you know, you know. I, I think back to your book, The Game, all the time. You know, whenever something like this comes up, and and sort of the way you know owner league and and players union negotiations have gone over the years, and it feels like. To me, at least, over the last you know five or six years, that relations have gotten have gotten you know kind of considerably worse as it's gone along. We've seen a lot more, you know, sort of um, teams holding out and not wanting to spend on on free agents. We've seen you know all kinds of proposals to to cut down the minor leagues, um, and you know the, we just feel like we're we have a pretty looming fight when the next uh, collective bargaining agreement ends. Um, did, do you think this really plays that much into into those negotiations, or do you think this is such a kind of a distinct event that maybe it won't carry over very much? I think this was a an unfortunate preview to what we're going to be watching in 2021 as they try to uh, put together a deal and and not have a work stoppage in in 2022. Uh, I finished the game in 2015 at which point the uh, baseball was enjoying uh, labor peace. And in fact, in 2011, in a 12-, 13-month period, every major sport um, had their contract come up. And the uh, football had a work stoppage, uh, NHL had a work stoppage, and the NBA had a work stoppage, and the only sport that didn't stop was baseball. And if you told a veteran baseball writer that that was going to happen prior to 2002, they would have thought you were going to be you were crazy, because every year from the time that Marvin Miller took over the union until 2002, every every contract meant a work stoppage, with the worst being in 1994. So I, you know, what I had been hearing by the time I was finishing up the reporting and writing the game and when the game was out, and I was still talking to my sources afterwards before I really got deep into my next book, um, I was hearing um, that ownership was really going to test the union. They didn't think the union was strong. Um, they, they didn't think having a player as the head of the union was, was, was a great idea. And they had been able to, over the, over the last several years, basically implement uh, a soft cap. Yeah. That luxury tax 
when the New York Yankees have a shaky starting rotation and that's what's stopping them from really having a legitimate um, shot at, at, at making the World Series and they don't go after the best pitchers uh, that came up in free agency, you know that there was that some that something was going on. And that's something, and they, they were by far the only team that was doing that. And that, that, that luxury tax is pretty onerous. I mean, for the Yankees, they were talking about, you know, when Matt Scherzer came up at, uh, at the free agency, I happened to be sitting in the uh, office of the Yankees' um, COO, and, he, and he, he, asked, he said, do you think Matt Scherzer is worth $48 million a year? <laughs> I said, no, not at all. Why? He goes, because that's what it would have cost us if we were signed him. Oh wow! They, were, they had been over the luxury uh, cap for so long that there that it was I think fifty eight cents you know fifty eight cents on a dollar that they had to pay uh, for for every dollar they spent over that cap and Scherzer would have put them way over the cap yeah and so they so they they, they literally said you know I think George would have done it but you know Hal Steinbrenner is is not is not his father. And he wasn't going to, you know, pay that kind of money for a pitcher, no matter how desperately, desperately they they needed Matt Scherzer, and they did desperately need Matt Scherzer. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I mean, so we've already seen a a uh, soft cap, and I think that's exactly what the players are looking to to um, to, to uh, take back. So I think the players want things. And that the that the owners have gained, and the owners think that the the union isn't going to be able to hold together. And I think, unfortunately, because of this uh, the pandemic, that you know they've already will have not made their full salaries for, for this year. And I understand that people do not feel sorry for players, <laughs> but you know, most people don't understand that um, the rank and file uh, um, average uh, career for a baseball player is four point two seasons. They never make it to free agency. And um, so, uh, you know, we're, we're only looking at a thin slice, and I think that the owners think that that thin slice will peel away from from the rest of them. And that's something that's never happened, but uh, it has happened in other sports, most notably in the NBA. Um, so, yeah, I think, we're, I think we're in for some very, very rough negotiations. Yeah, and the, uh, you know, the rather ha- ham-handed... Um you know, proposal to have like a sliding scale where the Garrett Coles and Justin Verlanders of the world would end up, you know, getting say 20% of, of their usual salary and the other players would get something more like the, the regular prorated that they were talking about was, yeah, I mean, just an obvious wedge to, you know, to try to drive into that, you know, that potential schism one, there. One could, one could certainly make the case that that was uh, an intentional uh, move to try to split uh, the players. Yeah, I do wonder if it's going to work. It almost feels like maybe this has kind of backfired on them a little bit, and actually the players who seemingly for the last you know decade or so haven't been terribly interested um, in what's gone on and, and in some of the negotiations seem like they're more invested now, and I don't know if that's because I follow certain players like, like a Trevor Bauer or Max Scherzer who are a little bit more cerebral and, and would take an interest in that, or, or if there's something a little bit more general um, in, in terms of unifying them as a union. I don't know. Well, it's, it's so hard to, to, to really draw conclusions based on what's happening now because we are in such uncharted territory that, um, you know, I do think that, that the, the proposals that the owners made um, did unite the players. But if we are lucky enough 
that life returns to close to normal by spring of 2021 and we have a, 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 a normal um, uh, uh, baseball season in a normal country, um, you know, you're, I think you're, you're looking at, um, you know, a, an inexperienced bargaining team um, that has, um, a, that, and it's always tough to pull, to keep a union together. That was, that, that is the, you know, the one thing that I really, really learned about the game was just how hard the union had to work to make the players understand how labor negotiations and, and, and how contracts work. And something that is as counterintuitive, and Gene Orza, who was, who was um, for a long time the, the, uh, the deputy for, to, to Donald uh, Fear, told me that, you know, to try to convince a veteran that they wanted the younger players to make a lot of money, which sounds counterintuitive. Well, if the younger players make a lot of money, that's money that I'm not getting. Well, if the younger players don't make much money at all, and you're a 32-year-old backup second baseman, and management's looking at this, you know, saying, geez, I can get a backup second baseman and pay him nothing. Yeah. You know, and he's 23 years old. Why do I need a 32-year-old that I got to pay $4 million to? Yep. And that has happened, you know, and to convince the players, and, you know, you're looking now at, you know, who, Free agents, non-free agents, people in arbitration, you know, for the, that, that make it into the, into the, into the Super 2s, um, people from all over the world, all different cultures, all different languages. I mean, it is a huge challenge to keep that group together. And, you know, and this is not a team that's, that, that is all that experienced in, in certainly in, in acrimonious labor uh, talks. Um, and I think that, that's what they're in for. And it's going to be a real test. And, you know, Tony Clark is, you know, was a, a good player and he's a smart guy. You know, this is going to be an incredible test of, of his leadership. And we'll find out if he's up to it. Yeah. You know, one thing that, that was also kind of interesting was that you, know, you never know for sure if, if some of these reports that are floated are accurate. But it did sound as though. You know, there might have been as many as eight owners who were diverged from the group and actually didn't necessarily want to have a season is, I mean, I, I guess what I wonder is, has ownership changed so much um, from from the days of, you know, the late 80s and the early 90s where you had a little bit more of like a, you know, owners that were, you know, it was sort of like a vanity project to own a, own a team. Like, obviously, it was profitable, but but it wasn't necessarily, a, you know, a corporate run style enterprise the way we seem to be. Now, do you, do you think the, the changing kind of face of, of the ownership teams has, has sort of has sort of changed things in that regard? Because I always figured, you know, partly just based on reading your book that, you know, Bud Selig, the fact that he had been general manager of the, of the Brewers, um, you know, kind of helped him to be able to to unify the owners, but also to maybe reach them and change their minds. Whereas now you have Rob Banford, who is, you know, really just kind of a, an employee, um, you know, someone who's just there to, to function to their whim. Um, does that dynamic, you know, affect things? Do you think at all? Well, I mean, Sealy was no question was a unique commissioner um, in that he, you know, he was an owner. He had skin in the game, and and uh, not only did he have skin in the game, but he was from an era where there were still mom and pop operations, uh, one of which was his. And, uh, you know, there was no way that in the changing dynamics of, of the baseball landscape, when cable TV came in and started paying, you know, $30 million 
to a year to George Steinbrenner, so he could spend, uh, you know, whatever he wanted to spend on players. And there's Bud Selig, who's who has a, a tiny fraction of that in Milwaukee. And so, how does he compete? And, and I think what's uh, so, you know, right now I think we're looking at at, at uh, much better financed um, management teams mm-hmm. um, and ownerships. And you know, one one stat that is that you know pretty much blew me away when I read it the other day, and you know I hadn't um, really kept up with the day to day the increasing valuations of of major league teams. But you know, the thing that fans don't understand is that baseball owners make their money when they sell their teams. Yeah. Not that there aren't plenty of owners that make plenty of money, um, and with the Yankees being one of them, um, but. The uh, you know show me the, I mean the next owner that loses money when he sells will be the first one, <laughs> and in the last six years the average um, increase in valuation of a baseball franchise is one billion dollars. Yeah. So you're sitting you know if you're in baseball you're sitting on an asset that is appreciating at a phenomenal rate. And if you decide, geez, you know what, I'm, I'm losing too much money, i got to cash out, you're looking at a gigantic profit um, from, from when you bought the team. And, you know, I think what's interesting about this uh, particular labor negotiations is that this is kind of like a, a third stage. The first stage was definitely owners uh, versus players. Marvin Miller uh, was the first uh, real executive director of the union, and they they uh, went after the reserve clause, and they got it taken down, and free agency came in, and that was you know the owners lost control you know of uh, of, of player contracts, and that was a huge deal. This, you know, then it morphed into the second stage where now we have free agency, and it was you know people think it was owner player that that. Uh, lost the season in 1994. It was, you know, that whole thing was owner versus owner. It was the big market owners versus the small market owners. And in fact, it came to a point where they had a meeting in, in Cola, Wisconsin. Uh, yes, the the the, the, uh, the toilet company, um, and, and it was sort of metaphoric. Um, <laughs> and they uh, were the. the, the they were planning their strategy for their uh, for the negotiations, and really, what was uh, what the big item was? You know, how do we balance the playing field between the Yankees, the Red Sox, uh, the Chicago Cubs, the big market teams, um, against the uh, the teams like the, like the um, the Mariners uh, and, and and the Brewers and small market teams? And the way they they decided to do that was uh, we'll take it from the players. So, so that that whole era really was was owner versus owner. Hmm. Now we're back to owner versus player. I think the owners are, like I said earlier, are um, pretty well capitalized. Um, there's an awful lot of money in in almost every ownership. Um, they're sitting on assets that that I don't think the people in in even even in the days of, of, of George Steinbrenner and the Yankees would, would could fathom the the valuations of the franchises um, now. Yeah. And you know, so I think the owners are pretty united in what they want. And I think the uh, so it's definitely gone back to owners versus players. So we're kind of in we're kind of back to back to where we started with with Marvin Miller. And uh, I don't know. I'd rather you know, no offense to Tony Clark, but I'd rather have Marvin Miller running it um, if I was to choose. Yeah, or Don Fire. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah. I, you know, and the other thing that's gone on too is that, you know, MLB as an entity itself is generating so much more revenue now. You know, we saw like the streaming platform, um, the MLB advanced media platform that they, they sold off. And, you know, I think each of the, each of the ownership groups got maybe 30 million, something like that. Like those, all those, all that kind of extra revenue that that's been built up um, that that's sort of league wide. Yeah. You would think would be a little bit more of a bulwark against, you know, being able to divide the small market owners versus, yeah, versus the big boys too. So that's, yeah, that's another, another fly in the ointment there as, as far as trying to um, get them to move on anything I would imagine. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm reading um, owners that, and, you know, anonymous that are talking about, oh, you know, we're going to lose $3 billion this year. You know, <laughs> there are a lot of teams that are, that are underwater. There's a lot of teams that are overextended on, on loans. Well, you know, you have to run your business um, properly. You know, just because you own a baseball team and we love baseball doesn't mean that you, that you cannot run your business well and that we have to bail you out. Um, and it's bad enough that you get stadiums that are publicly financed, which completely, you know, continues to blow me away. I mean, the people in Milwaukee are still paying for Miller Park, yeah. which was built in 2001 for 400, then a record $418 million that was the estimate. They are, they have now paid more than a billion dollars for that team, for that stadium, mm-hmm. because they have not retired the, the, uh, the tax that, um, I remember talking with, with uh, Wendy Sealy, who was the general counsel and then the president of the team, and she said, well, you know, it's only, a, you know, the, they don't miss a half a cent, uh, of, uh, you know, on, on sales tax. I mean, people would rather have the baseball team. I said, Wendy, come on, you, you know that's not the, the issue here. We're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars every year that could have gone to the schools in the inner city of Milwaukee yeah. or, the, or, or, or your infrastructure. Um, there's so many things that could that money could have been spent on and not a baseball stadium. And you got a baseball stadium. The Brewers for five for, for a stadium that was supposed to cost four hundred and eighteen million dollars, the Brewers paid five million dollars. Yep. That's it. And, and that was a big part of the increase in the value of that franchise when they sold. And uh, so, you know, uh, if, if you're overextended on your loans because you're improving your 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 uh, stadium, and um, then you know, uh, you're gonna. First of all, they're gonna get it back. Yeah. And and second of all, I'm sorry. Manage your team. Your finances better. <laughs> right. That's that's the job. Is not you know you don't necessarily buy a business and are guaranteed never to take a loss. Like that's that's not how exactly. it works. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, if you're not if you're losing money, um, I'm sorry. Uh, the, the employees are supposed to take it out of their paycheck just because these particular employees do things that you and I would love to do and are paid money that we'll never see doesn't mean they're still not workers yep. and why, you know, and what business are the workers supposed to give back their salary because geez, the, uh, the management here couldn't, you know, mismanage their loans. Yeah. And as has been debunked many times, you know, building, building a stadium to have the franchise there doesn't bring additional business, you know, that makes never. it worthwhile. It never works out that way. All it is is transfer money. I mean, okay, so yeah. the, the money that, that you spend on a ticket, if they weren't there, you'd be going to the movies, you'd be going to a play, you'd be going to dinner, and you look at, you know, not to keep picking on, on Bud Silly and the Bruce, <laughs> but I think it's the best example of the, of the worst-case scenario. They put the team three miles outside the city, which you might think that's not that far. You've got to go through such a maze of, of, 
of highways to get to that stadium, even though you can see it, that is, it, there's, and there's nothing there at all. Yeah. And nothing built up around it. There's no entertainment uh, parks. There's no restaurants. So when you go there, you tailgate in the parking lot and you, and then you pay $8 for a beer and, you know, $9 <laughs> for a hot dog. And, you know, you're, you're our captive audience. And um, so, yeah, it's it's it is a uh, it's a pretty good deal being owning a baseball team. Yeah, I, I just uh, I find it deeply hard to sympathize. Um, <laughs> I've had you know I've had yeah. a lot of conversations with people who you know will continue to bring up well you know just because it's the you know the franchise is worth that much you can't just you know you don't have that money lying lying around and I just don't understand why people think that way. I mean if you if you own a billion dollar you know business you can easily get a twenty million dollar loan. I mean you you have a, a license to print money as as Ted Turner used to kind of put it. So, right. yeah. Well, you exactly. know, I've talked, I've talked to the union a lot about this um, when I was reporting the game. And, and even, you know, well before that with, with baseball writers. And, and, you know, when you, you look at those of us who, you know, dream about being professional athletes, you, you know, you look at the NBA, and there's no way I was ever going to play in the NBA. I mean, I'm not 6'8". <laughs> and, you know, I look at those, you know, that, that wasn't going to happen. You look at pro football, and you look at the size and the speed of those players, and you go, you know, I was never going to be a football player. Then you look at the people who play baseball, and you go, you know what? I look just like those people. You know? Yeah. I, can, I mean, I'm bigger than, than Jose Altuve. Yep. I mean... And, and I can strike out with the bases loaded just like somebody else, you know? <laughs> All I got to do is get some, do something three, well, three times out of ten. Geez, maybe I can do that. So I think there is a sense that, that you know, in, 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 in sports fans that you, you look at what these people do and you go, I could do that. And, um, you know, so I think that's one of the reasons why they, they you know, they, they look at especially baseball players and, and resent um, that in fact, I was just at you know, so I was just somewhere at, at at a dentist appointment, and everyone in the office knows what I do, and they all wanted to talk to me about uh, the negotiations and what's going on. This <laughs> was just a couple of days ago before they, you know, Manford said, okay, we're playing, and these are the rules, and every one of the people there were complaining that the players were greedy. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I mean. Every single one, men and women, all of them were, were complaining to me that the players, how dare they, you know, 40 million people out of work. And I said, well, why is it that, I mean, money's going to be made. Why is it that you're, you think that the people who are billionaires should be the ones that get the money instead of the people who literally are putting their lives at risk by playing? Yeah. The, the players are assuming all the risk. I mean, you're not going to see the owners you know, um, milling around, uh, you know, in, in the clubhouse um, after games. I mean, the players are literally risking that it's all on them. And you're complaining about, about them wanting to be paid their salary. I, I, you know, but I, it didn't surprise me, and I tried to explain it. And I think a few people, maybe I changed their mind, but most of them still said, I don't care. They're playing baseball for a living. They should just take take what the owners give them and play. Yeah, I just, you know, I just think, you know, people don't see the owners. And maybe it's just, you know, it's just easier to kind of forget that they're there or to associate them more closely with the team because now we're in, you know, we're, we're long past the era where players stayed with the same team and you associated, you know, Yogi Berra, for example, with the Yankees or Justin Verlander with the Tigers, those kind of things. 
um, you don't associate the players quite as much um, because we're used to seeing them come and go. And I don't know if that plays into it. I, I doubt it matters because it seems like it's always kind of gone this way, hasn't it? <laughs> Even when guys were making like 20000 a year back in the 70s, probably people still thought they were making way too much. And, yeah, again, I think it's that, okay, I, I could have played baseball. Yeah. You know? I mean, I played baseball until I was 18. And, and uh, you know, and what people don't understand, I mean, I've been doing this for, for 46 years. I've been around professional sports. You have to be so incredibly good to be the 25th person in the roster. Yeah. And, and I mean, just unbelievably good. And, I mean, I've seen these guys. I've seen these guys close up, and I've seen them practice, and they are so good. They're so much better than the best person that I ever played against. And you don't, you don't realize this because you're watching them play against each other. Yeah. I mean, they are the best 800 people in the world at what they do. And, look, you know, should, should we as a society spend more money on education than we do on entertainment? You certainly can make that argument. But this is the society we live in. We, you know, we decided that our entertainment, um, that, that whether they be singers or actors, or Broadway actors or baseball players, we've decided that they, you know, they're a rare group of people and, and they get, you know, and they make this kind of money. Yeah. And, and so begrudging them for, for wanting to be paid for what they do, would you do something for and not get paid for what you do? <laughs> nope. Nope, I wouldn't. Yep, there it is. And I, you know, I, it, it also a line I've been using lately is just that you know, if um, if owning a baseball team was as much a meritocracy as baseball, you know, we'd probably be be in better shape because yeah, I just don't think people realize like how how consistently excellent you have to be um, even to distinguish yourself, you know, from like a double or triple A player to to being a, a major league regular. It's it's just yeah, it's just a, a world apart. It's, it's a very select group of people who can pull that off, and we obviously value it. Um, you and I are talking about it. Everybody who's going to listen to this podcast values baseball, you know, very highly. Obviously, so yeah, I don't really understand it either. <laughs> I, but it's uh, you know, I, I, I certainly know that the that the union and the, and the players are frustrated by it. But you know, there's uh, in fact, I think one of the reasons when I did the game, um, the, there were three. You know, there were three groups. That, that I wrote about, you know, it was the uh, the, the owners, um, with, with Bud Selig being the, the lead character in that, the, the union with, with Don Fear and then Michael Weiner being the lead character in that, and George Steinman and the Yankees because the, the Yankees set the salary scale for the entire sport. Yeah. And the first people to sign on, yes, we'll, we'll cooperate with you was the union. And the reason why Michael Weiner at that point was, was had just taken over I mean, wonderful man who, who tragically died of brain cancer at 51 about a year before I finished the book. And he, uh, you know, his reason was that, that he um, wanted to cooperate was he never thought that people understood baseball players and what the union did. Yeah. And, you know, and, and this man who was one of the humblest and most and one of the smartest and nicest people I've, I've ever met, um, he would spend hours teaching me labor law so I would ask the right questions. Hmm. Usually, I mean, you know, you, you do this too. Usually people try to kind of get away with things when they're, when they're dealing with the media. He wanted to make sure I understood the issues and understood how the law worked so that I could ask the right questions. And oh, yeah. understand when people were, were, were not answering the questions properly. 
Um, and that, that, so he, you know, that, that was the motivation. And I think that, um, you know, the leadership for the, for the union had, had been strong from Marvin Miller to, to Don Fear to Michael Weiner, who again, you know, tragically passed away of brain cancer. And, you know, this, uh, this one, as I, as I said, you know, many times, this one's going to be really tested. And, you know, he may, you know, Tony Clark may turn out to surprise a lot of us and, and be great at this. You know, and but you know he he's going to have to be graded at this for for us for one thing not to have a broken season and, and not to I mean I can envision spring training lockout in 2020 or the players striking um, at some point um, in 2021 because they are afraid of, of being locked out which is what happened in in 1994. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just it all it all. With everything else going on, yeah, I just it just feels like that's looming out there, um, and it's not great. And I really don't know if the players should take, you know, the the public perception or the you know the the sympathy that tends to go to the owners even into account at this point because I just don't know if it matters or if people even really, you know, have the attention span to really you know even hold a gr- hold a grudge long term. And if they do. You know, I mean, what, what it comes down to is that you're devaluing your own product if you're an owner and you've got all the fans mad at Mike Trout and Garrett Cole and these guys. Um, they're they're the product. Like they're they're the thing you have to sell. So, you know, Trevor Bauer, you know, who's been very outspoken during this, you know, said this is mutual destruction. Yeah. And and that's exactly what it is. It always amazed me. Uh, you know, watching baseball negotiations always devolve in, into into a. Um, into a labor uh, stoppage, that um, the owners would tell you how bad the players were and how ungreedy, how greedy, and how this and how that. It's like this is your product, and you're running it down. And then so when you sign a contract, suddenly we're supposed to forget that they're terrible people, mm-hmm. and and now they're, now they're great. Uh, I, I I never understood um, the negotiation, the negotiating tactics. Um, but both, you know, right now I think that most fans are looking at this and saying a pox on both houses, and I think that's exactly, um, I mean, I certainly, that's the way they felt in the 90s, and, you know, people probably forget, but when, the, when, when they came back in uh, 1995, um, they lost 20% of their um, attendance in 1995, and when they, in the first couple of weeks when they came back, people were throwing bottles and batteries at players in the outfield. And one in one um, uh, Mets fan with a sense of humor ran onto the field and sprinkled one dollar bills all over the infield. Oh. <laughs> and, and you know, people people held the grudge for a while. And what really you know bailed baseball out was uh, you know Cal Ripken going after Lou Gehrig's record. Yeah. And we don't have anything like that. Yeah, and then the home run the home run chase, obviously. Yeah. The home run, the, the three things, you know, Rifkin right away in, you know, in 95. Yeah. And then we had the Yankee resurgence, which, you know, whether you like the Yankees or you don't, having a good team in the major media market in, in, in the world is, is a good thing for your sport. I mean, and the, uh, the Yankees, you know, after so many years of, of, of Steinbrenner just destroying that team, um, the Yankees had a resurgence, and, and it was a resurgence of players like Derek Jeter and Paul O'Neill and Mariano Rivera, who were, uh, you know, people that uh, that fans liked. And of course, then we had the what we now know was was steroid fueled uh, home run era that that brought that really brought people back. I don't, you know, the Yankees are already good, so there's no Yankee resurgence. Um, there's no Lou Gehrig record out there that that people are going for, and we're not going to go through another steroid era. Yeah. So 
this is if they really break the game again, I I I, I don't see you know it's not going to be easy putting it back together again this time. Yeah, I mean we don't have as I mean just just um you know, without all that, you know, people just don't play baseball as much. Um, the sport's already struggling to, to stay relevant compared to basketball and football and some of the other kind of new things that are coming up. Um, video games, you know, like, like, you know, having actual tournaments with all that stuff. Um, the competition is a lot fiercer. I ended, I ended the game and I, I didn't know much about this until I started researching it, but you know, the, the, the Twitch and people watching, um, you know, filling, uh, basketball uh, arenas <laughs> to watch people play video games. Yeah, was, you know, and this is this is 2015. It's gotten much bigger since then. Oh yeah, for and sure. That you know, that, you know, the 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 entertainment dollar. You know, people going after the entertainment dollar. I mean, there there's there's a lot of competition, and you know, baseball. You know, is you know, there was a time where baseball it was it was baseball and nothing else. You know, the three top sports and Yogi Berra's Day, which, you know, the book I just finished, Yogi Berra's Day, the three top sports were baseball, um, horse racing, and boxing. Oh, yeah. You know, with the NFL and the NBA um, not nearly as relevant, and, you know, and college football and college basketball being regional. And, you know, that's not, you know, it's sort of like being in newspapers in those days where that was the dominant form of communication. Um baseball you know doesn't doesn't have that kind of luxury anymore not not for a while yeah yeah so they they better trade uh, or tread fairly cautiously here because yeah it, it could really undo things pretty badly i'm alex rodriguez and i'm jason kelly from bloomberg this is the deal each week you're here in conversation with business icons this show will explore deal making across sports media and entertainment that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Um, I do want to talk about Yogi Berra a little bit. Um, we, we, I think both of us could probably talk about the uh, <laughs> the labor negotiations probably for another hour or two, but... Uh, um, the new book, Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask, um, you know, got just fantastic reviews. Um, you know, someone my age, I think, you know, sometimes I lose Yogi Berra, the player and and the man um, for, for the myth. Um, what was that part of the motivation for, for writing a biography of him? I, mean, I know you're a Yankees fan, so you must have grown up, you know, loving Yogi Berra in general, I assume. Well, that was actually you're 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 right on the money. That was that was the motivation. I'm I'm a I'm a baby boomer. I got to see the tail end of Yogi Berra's career. Um, I really the, the first year that I really remember well is 1960, which you know ended with Bill Mazeroski ending the Yankee season with that with that home run and the picture of Yogi Berra looking at the wall um, and seeing the the World Series fly over the wall. Um, in the series that the Yankees outscored the Pirates and outhit the Pirates by by like 50 runs and 70 hits, um, which just you know absolutely stunned them. But the you know the uh, he, he was my, he was my father's favorite player. My father told me uh, always told me what a uh, my father was a catcher. I started mm-hmm. as a catcher, and because of that, and he told me just what an unbelievably dynamic player he was, and that's not who I saw. Um, and then, like you said, I think he, he, you know, his accomplishments as a player, um, even though people understand that he was in the Hall of Fame and understand that he was on, on a lot of World Series winners, um, kind of got gets lost in the in the persona of of, 
of, of who yogi is was supposed to be. Yeah. You know, I mean, all the yogiisms and, and you know, the, the, his life almost, um, his image became a, a caricature that was accepted um, as who he really was. And, and I knew that not to be true. I mean, I, I um, was a sports editor when, when Yogi Berra uh, and covered the Yankees when Yogi Berra was uh, a coach and then the manager of the Yankees. Um, and uh, so I knew that that wasn't, you know, the, the, the person that people think they know now was not who he was so that in you know that combined with the person that my father described to me um really intrigued me and said you know let me go back and look at uh at this life and it's just he led just an incredibly full and rich life um starting any and he truly is the the american dream yeah uh, you know starts starts out as a, as a son of a of a, an immigrant um working poor during the depression in on the on the in the italian section of st louis where when um you know happy childhood lots of kids including his, his across the street neighbor joe garajola who we knew from the time yogi was five and joe was four oh, yeah. uh, but they did things like when the when the uh when the truck left the uh, the food market to go to the city dump, they'd all follow it with their with their pen knives in their pockets um, and sift through the fruit and the vegetables, you know, cutting away um, the the uh, uh, the rotten parts and looking for the right parts. Oh wow! Yeah. And you know, and, you know so a very different life. Um, you know, goes into the into the army, faced a lot of discrimination as an Italian American. Something I, I didn't know. I didn't know that there was internment camps for Italians during the war, and that that you know people every family on the hill was uh, you know was was talked to by the uh, FBI. Oh wow, I didn't know that either. Yeah, that they were not uh, Mussolini sympathizers. And, um, you know, in fact, Joe DiMaggio's father was not allowed to go to Joe DiMaggio's restaurant during the, during the war because um, he, uh, he, Italians were not allowed um, uh, on the water because that's, I mean, on the shore there because that's where a naval base was. Oh, yeah. Or they could be signaling the U-boats and stuff out there, yeah. And so they moved, they moved 10,000 Italians in California um, uh, inland from the coast, and 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 all of them. I mean, Joe Joe um, Joe's father, um, you know, was a fisherman. All of the fishermen's boats were confiscated. Um, it, it was, uh, you know, Italian. Yogi faced discrimination as an Italian, and he also faced an incredible amount of abuse for his supposed lack of smarts. He was called um, uh, by teammates and the media and opponents and the fans. He was called the Nature Boy. Um, Quasimodo, um, the ugliest man in baseball. Mm. Uh, just, just you know, and and that and that's something that lasted all the way through his career as a manager. You know, where when every time he became a manager, you know, resurfaced the stories of whether Yogi was smart enough to be a manager. And considering some of the managers that we've watched in baseball, that's a low bar. <laughs> and and and. Uh, so you know, th- these it, it was uh, you know kind of incredible that not only did he not um, emerge from that as a, as a bitter man, but this is a guy who was as famous as anyone in America during the fifties, uh, and and was in just had an incredible baseball career. You know, three time MVP, won ten World Championships in the seventeen years with the Yankees. Uh, they were in the World Series fourteen times, 
um, and um, you know a Hall of Fame career, and he was you know never looked at someone as if he was better than than them. He certainly knew he was a star. He knew he was a great baseball player. He knew he was making, you know, relatively uh, great living. Um, But he was just as comfortable sitting around talking with the security guards and the clubhouse men as he was when he went to state dinners um, at the White House with, you know, sitting at the table with Ronald Reagan and the the, uh, crown prince of um, Saudi Arabia. Yeah, just never, never sort of lost uh, where he came from and and always kind of appreciated it. Did, I mean, was the impression of him that he was almost like this, this sort of savant-like character who who had a knack for like lucking into things and was just naturally talented? I mean, that that's kind of the impression that I think I grew up with of him that he was sort of like this happy-go-lucky character who said all these strangely witty things and everything just sort of happened for him. It, it was kind of well, the impression. Again, that's the that's the caricature that is is completely off base. First of all, Yogi worked incredibly hard to get where to where he was, and um, and uh, first he had to get through his father, who who told his uh, three older brothers, all of whom were good baseball players, all of whom had opportunities to play professional baseball, and his father said, uh, "Games off for boys. You're a man. You're going to work." Mm. And and he didn't want Yogi to play baseball, and his and his brothers. This is towards the end of the end of the depression banded together and said, you know, we're, we'll work the extra shifts, we'll bring in the extra money, you know, we think Yogi is, is that good, you know, let's, let's see if he can make it. And, you know, he had a tryout with the St. Louis Cardinals along with Red Shandings and, and who told me this story, and Joe Garagiola, and it ended up, out of a thousand kids, it ended up with eight of them, five who Red didn't remember, but Red and, and Joe and Yogi were the, in the last eight, and Red pitched to Yogi, and he said, I never heard the bat hit the ball with such force ever before or ever since. And, and Red was 93 in the special assistant with the Cardinals when he told me that story. Huh. And um, Branch Rickey, who was supposed to be the, the greatest uh, talent judge in, 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 in baseball, uh, told Yogi that uh, you know, he picked Joe Garagiola and thought he was the better prospect. And Joe was a good prospect, no, no question. Um, and he did make it to the major leagues, and you got to be awfully good. But he told Yogi Berra that, son, I'm telling you this for your own good. I don't think you're more than a triple-A baseball player, and we're looking for players who can go all the way. Oof. And he wouldn't give him a $500 bonus. And had he done that, Yogi Berra would have been Larry Berra, because Yogi gets his nickname uh, two years later playing in, uh, on an American Legion team. And, you know, he was Larry Barra playing for the St. Louis Cardinals. Oh, his hometown and, team, yeah. Yeah, and in their infinite wisdom, the uh, the, the, the woebegone um, St. Louis Browns decided, well, if, if Branch Rickey doesn't like him, then we don't either. <laughs> so they, they say, you, you can come play with us, but we're not going to give you any bonus. And there's no way that Yogi's father was going to let him go to play baseball. And every time I tell that story to anyone who has a connection with Baltimore, um, I kind of add that, you know what, um, in 1954, the St. Louis Browns become um, the Baltimore Orioles, and the starting catcher for the Baltimore Orioles would have been Yogi um, <laughs> Barrett in his prime, who was that season winning the second of his three MVP awards. Oh, yeah. And, and was, was probably one of the top two or three baseball players in the American League. 
which my brother-in-law is from Baltimore, drives him absolutely crazy. <laughs> There's a five-year stretch when the Yankees won the only team to win five straight World Series, 1949 to 1953. Uh, people think that in, 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 in Yankee lore, the player, you know, it goes from Joe DiMaggio to Mickey Mantle. But that ain't true. I mean, the, the, the end of uh, Joe DiMaggio's career, 1949, 50, and 51, he is hurt half of 50, and he bats 263 and 51. Um, the best player on that, on those five, for those five years, is um, is not a young Mickey Mantle who's striking out as much as he's, as he's hitting. It's Yogi Berra who every year is hitting 20 plus home runs, sets the record in American League for for home runs for a catcher at 30, knocks in 100 runs every year, is batting between 280 and, and 322, and he's and he's catching an average of 141 games a year. Yeah, and he's. One year he caught 149 um, games, and one year he caught 148 games, and that included 22 double headers, back-to-back double headers in August and in September. Wow! And when and and this is a team that that developed um, catchers like Sean Lauer, who goes off and is traded and, and ends up being an, an all-star, and Gus Randos, who's traded and becomes an all-star, and Elson Howard, who's, who's, who's converted into a, a catcher and, you know, was an MVP in 1963, but he couldn't get past Yogi in the, in the 50s. And when asked um, uh, why he caught Yogi that much at the toughest position on the field, uh, Casey Stangle said, well, when I catch Mr. Berra, we win World Series. <laughs> and it was hard to argue with that. Yeah. But that's such an incredible workload, you know, by, by today's standards. That's, you know, that's just kind of mind-boggling. No comes close by today's standards uh, at all. Yeah. And, and you know, and you're, and you're talking about early in his career, you're talking about train travel, which is not exactly the easiest way to travel. And when they would go to St. Louis, it took 38 hours to get to St. Louis by train from New York. Wow. And, you know, so, and you're playing, you know, you're going to sleep in, in one city, you're waking up in another city, you're playing back-to-back games, you're playing, and, you know, you're playing in the heat of the day because, you know, a lot of times, you you know, they're not night games. Um, and, yeah, it was incredibly physical tax. And this is, when Yogi was, in, you know, I saw Yogi, the first time I saw Yogi was when Yankee Stadium reopened in 1975. I believe, and yes, because 1976 was they made the World Series. 1975, and I see Yogi Berra um, first year back um, with the no, it had to be 76. I'm sorry, with the Yankees after after being with the Mets, and here's this guy. He couldn't have been more than five three. He was probably about 158 pounds, maybe 160 pounds. I'm going. This is the guy that I heard about, <laughs> but when he in his prime. Yogi was, uh, first of all, he looked like he was put together, you know, with good spare parts, but spare parts because he had, you know, short, stubby legs. He had a big torso, big shoulders that didn't look like he had um, a neck, um, long arms, really thick, strong wrists, and um, and, and he was um, incredibly strong. Um, and what people don't know, he almost stayed as, a, as an outfielder. In fact, when the 1948 season ended, Yogi Berra played the last 50 games in the outfield. About a 340, hit eight home runs, knocked in about 58 runs, and everybody wrote um, that, and Yankee management said that Yogi Berra was going to be the starting right fielder in 1949 for the Yankees. Oh, wow. And then they fire Bucky Harris. Um, <laughs> 
in an, you know, he has an argument with, with um, George Weiss, who's a famous general manager of the Yankees, and they bring in Casey Stengel. And Casey realizes that, you know, in that era, if, if you had a catcher batted 240 and, you know, hit, hit a dozen home runs, not in 50 runs, um, you had, that was great because the catcher's job was to call the game and to field the position. Yeah. And Yogi, as a catcher, um, he would hit umpires in the head with his throws to second base. <laughs> um, had a great arm, but not exactly accurate. Um, he couldn't block a pitch. Um, put it this way, if you want to know what Yogi Berra looked like as a catcher, watch Gary Sanchez. <laughs> and, 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 uh, uh, that, that's, uh, but they brought in Bill Dickey, and, and uh, Stengel wanted Berra to catch, and Dickey challenged him to be a good catcher, and he saw that basically what we're looking at here was a, was a great athlete who had no idea how to catch. And he corrected a lot of mechanical flaws in his game. And once he finished that, two hours every day after practice in, in, in Florida, they worked on it. And by the end of spring training, not only do I think he's going to be the starting catcher for the Yankees, I think he's going to be the best catcher in the American League. Wow, yeah. And, and, he, and he was spot on. Yeah, you know, I think somehow in that era, you know, like we know Yogi Berra, but, you know, we think about um, in Detroit a little bit like Bill Freehan and a lot, a lot of the catchers from that era just kind of get kind of get left behind because we look back and we just look at the, you know, the, the biggest counting stats. You know, we look at the home runs, we think of Maris, Mantle, all those guys. But, but yeah, the, the catching position at that time, sometimes I don't, I don't consider it myself like what a what a workload it was <laughs> just just on its own. Yeah. Here's another thing to, to think about. Um, Yogi, once once Dickey corrected all the flaws, Yogi had, um, for baseball, what would, would, would be akin to a photographic memory. He could tell you, you know, how they got Rocky Colavito out with the man on second in the seventh inning um, and with, with uh, you know, a, a one-two count in, the, in, the, in, in August. He would remember. Yeah. And it was like having a computer behind the the, uh, the the plate. And the Yankee pitchers went from complaining to management that they didn't want to catch, you know, the, the Yogi to catch, to absolutely relying on him. And I sat down with, with Don Larson for a couple of hours before a old-timers game. And, of course, we talked about the perfect game in 56. And I said, you know, tell me about tell me about that game and, 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 and what went on with Yogi. He goes, you know, I threw 96 pitches. Yogi called every one of them. I never shook him off. Wherever Yogi put his mitt, that's where I hit. I was in the zone. He was in the zone, and we and we got a perfect game. And he said we. Yeah. And it's like that's you know he he knew you know the catcher has to know you know has to handle the pitching staff. Um, you know one of the things that I didn't know about Casey Stengel was Stengel never talked to the players. He talked to the to the press. And he would send the the the, the, the uh, players' messages through the media, oh, and yeah. it was great with the media. And and Barra was the only person he talked to, and the person that had the the, the meetings before the game um, with the pitchers was Barra. Stenger was never in those those meetings. It was only Ogie and and the pitching staff. Oh yeah. And I mean, they he you know he he ran the pitching staff, and anyone who's been a catcher knows you know trying to. Um, trying to manage, you know, uh, pitchers who are the most high-strung people um, on your team, and you know, you've got to be a psychologist. You, you cannot be a dumb person and be a great catcher. Yeah, you just can't. 
And then he's coming and, up with all the game plans as well. Yes. Coming up with the game plans, and, and the, he's the only person on the field, I know this from being a catcher, who sees every, every uh, you know, has the game in front of him, sees where every player, and has to know when the ball is hit to any place on the field, what happens. Mm-hmm. Where is everybody supposed to be? Where's the throw going to be made? What you know that play that Derek Jeter is, is is so famous for when he you know when he got the ball during the and against the A's in the in the, in the uh, playoffs and he made that backhand flip that he, that caused Giambi who forgot the slide oh yeah and, and he, uh, you know and and basically saved saved the Yankees post postseason that year um, you know that was a great intuitive play that's what Yogi did every game. You know, I mean, he had to know where every single player was supposed to be and what the right play was for every single situation, and he did. Yep. And when it, it comes to baseball, Yogi's IQ is off the charts. And he must have been a great communicator, too, if he was the guy who was basically, you know, I mean, it sounds like he was kind of the player coach before he before he really was the, the player manager later on, yeah. Well, you know, uh, Stengel called him his assistant manager, and and uh, I don't think he was doing that just to psychologically boost Yogi's ego. Um, <laughs> he was the assistant manager. Wow, yeah, that's it's just an amazing, uh, amazing story and an amazing life, John. I really want to thank you uh, for for agreeing to talk to us a little bit. Um, I know you're you're a busy guy. I've I've admired your writing for a really long time. Everybody out there should go uh, go pick themselves up a copy of Yogi: A Life Behind the Mask. And if you really want to delve into the, the ugly, dirty details of uh, what goes on behind the scenes in Major League Baseball, the game is a, uh, is a uh, veritable tour de force <laughs> um, journey through uh, the last 30 years of, of the whole history of it. And uh, I've enjoyed that book quite a bit. It's, uh, it's really made, made a lot of sense out of what's going on now and in the past for me. Um, I'm, just a, I'm a big fan, so I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this. And it's been my pleasure. I can, you know, talking baseball is um, is, a, is a is a great thing these days. Oh, and you know, need rather, it. rather than everything else that's going on, it's been a, it's been a pleasure to do, have the opportunity to talk about the, the labor situation, and even better to talk about one of the people I admire most in baseball, uh, Yogi Berra. Oh, uh, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Um, thanks a lot. Have a nice walk. Um, tell your wife thanks for uh, letting us keep you for a while, and <laughs> you have a good evening. We'll do that. Take care, Brandon. Take care.